So, uh, Michael and the tech crew, let's just go through those again, just in case you missed it, because some of you are especially attentive and you know want to make sure that you get them all right. Okay, so we're just going to the S is the sense of self, sense of self, and the sense of you know who you are. The H, right, is that you hear the word of God, and you hear and obey. The A is that you act in grace and compassion. The P, okay, I'll slow down. Don't you hate tour guides who know where everything's at and you're trying to find it for the first time? You're like, wait, wait, where was that? The building to the right. What? No, I'm looking left. Ah! You're right or my right. (laughs) All right. So uh, A is act in grace and compassion. P is a posture of humility. And E is engaged to serve. All right, engaged to serve. Now, the reason we can review that so simply is because, well, all the slides are there, and I'm actually leaving these slides with, uh, with the team here, and so they can circulate those, use those as notes for the podcast. But I don't know if you guys know this or not, but we live in an open book exam world. Right? Too many of us have fallen into the trap of believing that it's not an open book exam world, but it's an open book exam world. And so I want you just to kind of keep that in mind. And you know, sometimes you'll hear material in one place and you go, man, that was really good. Or maybe sometimes you'll hear something for the first time and you're like, I'm not sure that I really like that. But then you hear it for the second time and it's like, oh, that's really good. We, we, we live in a, a world where we have access to so much at any given time that it can be very difficult for us to find ways to navigate through all the information. And some of us live with excessive FOMO. You know, we're, gonna, we're fear of missing something out on something, and so we don't always, you know, uh, want to fully engage, or we're afraid that we're going to miss out, so we over-engage, and we do everything. And, and my wife, uh, she reminded me years ago when, we, when I first started preaching, that she said, honey, you can't preach using those fill-in-the-blank notes that, you know, some pastors use because you never say it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I say it all the time. I say it right. She said, no, you don't say it the way you wrote it. That's hard when you hear words of encouragement like that. <laughs> you know? And, and so, um, you know, if, if you wrote something down different than the way I said it, that's okay. All right? Um, you're, you're experiencing the story from your vantage point. I'm experiencing it from my vantage point. And what we want to do is we want to submit it all to God, and we want to say, God, what is it that you're trying to teach me in this moment? What is it that you're trying to teach me in this moment? So the first part of our time together, we were talking about the shape of a leader. I'm going to shift gears now, and I want to kind of talk about some issues and some aspects of the society which we're living in today and how it applies to the church. I've had the privilege of being able to work alongside the the ministries that take place across Texas for the Church of God. I think Pastor Richard mentioned that earlier. Uh, I serve alongside Pastor Ephraim Cirillo. He's the state pastor for Texas Church of God Ministries, and I just come alongside and encourage him as an advisor and a coach, but he asks me to do some leadership formation and talks similar to what I'm doing for you. As a matter of fact, I'm doing the talk for you today in the second session that I just did yesterday for them, okay? So hope you're not offended. It's an open book exam. You may come across this talk somewhere else. You're like, how did that work out? Well, that's, that's how it played, is that sometimes preachers just share a message in multiple spots, and that's okay too. But I want to talk really about the kind of this next generation. I want to talk about the rising generation. 
And back in November, the Texas Ministries had their annual meeting in what they called the Recalibrate Conference. And as we gathered together, we had a panel of different leaders who were engaged in next generation or rising generation ministries. We had a, a youth minister, we had a senior minister, and we had a, a children's um, minister there. So the senior minister is lead pastor of a church. And we're going to hear from two of those as we go through today's session here in these next few moments. But um, really, as we think about the rising generation, as we think about those who are coming along, how many of you find yourself in a position of going, I just don't know how to connect with them? It's, it's okay, raise your hand. You know, if you're like, I'm just, I'm not sure that I know how to connect with them. Maybe you're in the, the position of, like, I talk with them, but I don't know how to talk with them about God. How many of you are in that position? That you don't know how to talk to them about God. These could be your own kids. They could be somebody else's kids. It could be a number of different ways that it's playing out. But right now, we're, it's, it can be pretty intimidating. And so I want to take a moment here, and I want to help us get over that intimidation. Okay? Are you good with that? All right. Open up your Bibles again. Again, uh, we're going to be digging through uh, some different passages of Scripture. This one won't be quite as uh, Scripture-heavy as the last one, but we're going to be uh, looking at a couple different passages. I want you to look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses for us from Psalm 78. And I want you to think about this in relationship to our ability to minister and reach the rising generation. O oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past, stories you have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his mighty power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob and he gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them. Even the children not yet born and they in turn will teach their children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. Join me in prayer as we dive into this section. Over these next few moments as we're together, we're going to talk about how it is that our lives are intersecting a rising generation. Many of us are burdened for them. Some of us are confused by them. Others have just thrown our hands in the air and maybe even abandoned them. I would ask God that you would soften our hearts and that you would help us to take on the attitude that is shared here in Psalm 78, that we will not hide the truths of what you have done from our children, that we will tell the next generation. Because, God, you have given the instructions. You've made your way clear. And we need to make it clear to the next generation so that they might know. And that their children might know. And that should you tarry, Lord, that they would continue to know generation after generation. So that each generation can set its hope anew, fresh, 
on you. So help us in these next few moments, Lord, as we lean in to you. Soften our hearts for those that you care deeply about. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I want to kind of take it. This is going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be as much like heavy preaching as it was before. It's going to be a little bit more of a, a seminar format here. But this first bit here, we're going to keep the music playing because it's on you. You've got to do a little pop quiz survey here. Okay, so this is your pop quiz. All right, and you're going to see some questions that are going to be up on the screen. We're going to leave them up, and you're going to need to write down your answers because we're going to score you. Okay, so you ready? Are you ready? All right, here we go. Let's survey says, name as many children under the age of 25 as you can that you interact with on a monthly basis. Name as many of them as you can, right? And I say children because, you know, some people who are like 21, we don't always think of them as children, but some of us still think of them as children. You know what I'm saying? The 21-year-old doesn't recognize their child, but the rest of us recognize they're still learning. Under 25, write down as many names as you can. And then write down how it is that you interact with them. How do you interact with them? And, and maybe you don't have to write that part down because you already know. But then to also think about how frequently you see them in a month. I'm going to give you a few moments to kind of process that. There's a power in actually writing it or typing it down as opposed to just thinking through it. Don't forget your own children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren in this list. If you're not sure if somebody's under the age of 25, but you think they are, go ahead and put them on the list. Like, are they 23? Are they 28? Just go ahead and put them on the list. All right, hopefully at this point you've got several names. And so here's what we want to do. We're going to pause with writing the names, and now we're going to score. We're going to score some things as it relates to those names. I want you to give, your five point, give yourself five points for each name that is listed. Give yourself five points for each name that is listed. So if you've got 15 names, five times 15, you do the math, all right? It's like 60, all right? Uh, give yourself five points for each one that you interact with who is not related to you not related to you, right? Not to say that those who are related to you don't get any points, but we're giving you extra points for those that you interact that are not related to you. Give yourself 10 points for each one that you teach, whether that's formally or informally. Formally would be like you're a school teacher or you're a children's ministry teacher. Informally would be like you mentor. Give yourself 15 points for each one that you share a meal with. Some of you are like, well, okay, maybe not getting any points there. 20 points for each one that you communicate with 
in a personal message type thing. So that could be face-to-face, but most likely if you're interacting with somebody under the age of 25, that means you're text messaging or, Insta- or private messaging them through Instagram or, or Snapchat or, or TikTok or something like that. And then finally, give yourself 25 points for each one that you are praying for. Some of you are going, man, why did I write so many names? <laughs> I can't do that much math. I tried to keep it easy with fives, tens, you know. When it comes to math problems, I always tell people I have a degree in Bible. So I know 1, 3, 7, 12, and uh, 144,000. Those are the only numbers that I know. Oh, wait, 40. I know 40, too. <laughs> How are we doing? What, get, some of you got a tab, tabulation of your totals yet? Anybody got a total? All right. Raise your hand if you've already got a total of what your score is. I mean, you're still adding up. All right. He's got a couple hands. Somebody ready? All right. Go ahead. Just the more hands that I see, just raise your hand when you feel like you've got your total. So that way I know about the time that we're ready to, to give you your grade. All right. A couple more hands going up. Good. All right. Good. Looking good, looking good, all right. We're about halfway there. All right. Okay, well, let's, let's do this, all right. If you got 50 points, raise your hand. If you got 50 points, raise your hand. All right, keep your hand up, 50 points. Okay, if, uh, so you have at least 50 points. If you have at least 50 points, keep your hand up in the air. If you have at least 100 points, keep your hand in the air. If you have at least 150 points, keep your hand in the air. If you have at least 200 points, at least 300 points, at least 400 points, at least 500 points, at least 600 points, at least 700 points, at least 800 points, at least 900 points, at least 1,000. All right, we still got some hands up in the air. I'm loving this. All right, uh, at, at least 1,100 points, 1,200, 1,300, 1,400, 2,000. You, oh, we got, all right, so we're over here, we got, we still got there, three, looks like, all right, 2,500, 3,000. What's your number? Well, that's okay, what's your number? Over 5,000. Are you over 5,000? 2590. Okay, so, so over, they're school teachers, right? Is that what you said? Yeah. And so school teachers are always interacting with kids. They're, there's always this dynamic. And so here's the thing. It's like some of us, we kind of like are going, well, I've only got 100 points. And some of you are like, I got 5,000 points. And, and here's the thing is, I want you to recognize that there is not a sense of you have to have so many points. The reason that I had you score that up is because I want to know, are you thinking about the next generation? I want to know, are you thinking about it? And we measure what matters. I'm getting, that's, a, that's a leadership point right there in case you didn't catch that. We measure what matters. And so if the next generation matters to us, we're going to measure where we're at in our engagement with them. And, and even the, the scoring that I gave to you of how many do you see or how many do you know, how many you know, do you interact with, uh, all these, these are arbitrary made-up numbers. You know, it wasn't something that like some scientific survey put these together. I just gave it there to kind of measure something. 
And there is significance and power in, in knowing, a, knowing somebody, but there's significance and power in knowing their name. I want you to think about the, the significance of knowing somebody's name. Knowing somebody's name is, is so important. And what is happening in our culture right now is that we are in a, an age of disconnection, even though we should be in an age of connection. And we have a lot of people who we interact with, but we don't know their names. And when it comes to the rising generation, you may see many of them, but you don't know their name. And names matter. Names matter. I want to take a moment here and I want to look at, at some quick names that are found in the Bible. And I want you to think about the significance of those names as they, we think about the way that names matter. The first of those names is, is, uh, is Sarai. You remember Sarai, the, the wife of Abram? Right? She has her name changed after she laughs at what God's going to do. And that in knowing her name, you get a chance to know her story. Are you with me on that? Right? God changed her name along the way. Uh, one that is like really demonstrative in regards to this is Jacob. If you know your, your Bible reading well, in the book of Genesis, this, you get the story of Jacob and his sons. But Jacob has, has this moment where he wrestles with God. Do you remember that moment where he wrestles with God and, and he won't let go of the, the, the wrestling moment? And, and God changes his name from Jacob, which meant deceiver, one who grabs the heel and overturns, to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God and man and overcomes. And so there's an aspect in which knowing Jacob's name led to knowing Jacob's story. And it's the story that gets told over and over again. Maybe you know a little Jacob somewhere, and you can say, hey, what's, you know, what's your name, Jacob? Oh, did you know that that's a name that's in the Bible? And that you can tell the story of that Jacob, and maybe the Jacob you're talking to, particularly if he's like a four-year-old or five-year-old, maybe he likes to wrestle too. And you can begin opening up the doors and having conversation with that Jacob about what God is doing. But it only happens because you know the names. Names lead to stories. How about Jedediah? You guys know the name Jedediah? Most people don't recognize Jedediah as Solomon's first name. Did you know that God named baby Solomon? He named him Jedediah. But David changed his name to Solomon. Think about that for just a moment. Think about the story. We've already alluded to it earlier when I was talking about Ecclesiastes, right? We, we talked about the dynamic of Solomon's story. What is Solomon's story? He starts out with God, Jedediah, the beloved. And then as he grows, he becomes with man, identified as the king and he goes his own course. There's a story to be told there. There's a story to be told in each of your names. As I walked in today, I got to meet Grace, and I got to hear a little bit of her story. And Pastor Richard was sharing her story. Think about the name of Jesus. Where did Jesus' name come from? It came from the angel who spoke it to his parents and said, you'll name him Jesus. But it wasn't just some arbitrary name. It was a name that had meaning to it so that the story would be told. And so when every time that you get to meet somebody, particularly those who are in the rising generation, they may have a name that they don't know the story connected to it with. But if you will lean in, you can find out the story or you can connect it to a somebody else's story. Names are powerful because they tell stories. I want, I, Pastor Richard and I have 
Like I said, we've been interacting since like 1997. So Pastor Richard, come up here. I want you, I want you to tell a little story about my name and one of uh, the other students that was there at the, at the time and how you perceived those dynamics there and, and what your thoughts on our names was and the significance. By the way, my name is Malcolm Tyree. Malcolm Tyree. Let that sink in for just a moment. All right, go ahead. Okay, I'm the campus pastor and... Uh director of campus ministries at MidAmerica. And uh, like Malcolm said, we used to gather in the cafeteria and chit-chat and just talk. And, and I had met Vince Miller, this young African-American kid that loved the Lord, wanted to learn more and more about him. And then I met Malcolm Tyree, who was this not young, not African American, <laughs> uh, kind of glowing the glowing the dark white guy. Yes. You know? <laughs> but I didn't know their names, and I was trying to learn their names, and and uh, they go, I go Malcolm, Malcolm, Tyree, Tyree, oh, so horrible stereotype. But I went to Vince Miller, Malcolm Tyree, what's up, brother? How are you? Vince Miller, what's up, brother? And they look at each other, they're like, oh, we're not going to tell this guy. So for <laughs> the longest time, he was Vince Miller, and, and Vince was Malcolm Tyree. And then I finally discovered that I was being made a fool out of <laughs> myself, and, and they just kept it going. But, uh, but, but it's really sad that we do that. And, uh, and what's really interesting, Malcolm uh, has a passion to say, I want to know cultures. And he pastors a bilingual church, uh, Spanish and English. And, and Vince was someone that's still real close to me. He pastored an English and Spanish church. And uh, it's just amazing their heart for the Lord and their heart to win people. Thank you, Richard. Pastor. Appreciate Thank you, Vince Miller. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so stories and names are oftentimes connected. And so one of the things Pastor Richard would say to us all the time is, is like, maybe you guys should switch names, right? You just guys should just switch identities. And, and the thing is, we can't necessarily easily switch identities. But I've, throughout my life, uh, people have seen my name and they've just assumed, well, he's a black guy, right? And where I live in Dallas, I've joked that I should probably put my name on the sign, but not my picture. Because where I live in Dallas... 40%, over 40% of the population is black, right? And, uh, and, and then uh, about 60% of the population is Hispanic, okay? So, you know, there are a few white people sprinkled in, but there's not a lot. And it's a very diverse area. Uh, and, you know, because if you're like, wait, 40%, 60%, he's white, he lives there. Let me just tell you, it's very diverse. And stories matter. We, we changed the name of our church, just like, you know, uh, years ago, this congregation changed and evolved its name. We changed the name of our church from New Life Bible Fellowship to New Vida. So that way we could tell the story well. Names matter. And if you are not taking the time to learn the name of someone, learn the name of the rising generation, then they are not going to feel like they matter. Now, uh, the reality is, is that they will, they will begin to confuse their own identity when you don't understand their identity. And the young generation, the rising generation, identity is first and foremost to them. 
And we have to lean in and we have to be willing to learn their name and hear their story and then to ask questions of them. We need to lean in and and, and the way that we learn their story is not that we tell their story to them, but we ask them questions about their story. And and one of the things that I find is that one of many reasons that we're intimidated to talk to the young generation is that most of us never learned how to ask questions. We learned how to tell things. We learned very well from our parents and from our bosses and and from the society that we live in how to tell someone how to think, but we never ask them, what do you think? And as a result of that, we don't engage in questions and answers very easily. And we're not sure how to do that. So I want to show a quick video here that talks about the power of a question and the power of effective questions. So let's watch this video. Voltaire said, judge a man by his questions rather than his answers. And he makes a very good point. It's often said that the quality of your life is defined by the questions you ask, because the quality of the question determines the quality of the answer. So it stands to reason that if you can get better at asking questions, then you can get better answers. Better answers result in a whole host of benefits. For example, being better informed allows you to make better decisions. But being better at answering questions doesn't just mean getting better answers. Obtaining information is just one outcome of questioning. Questions can be used for controlling a conversation. This can be particularly useful during an argument or negotiation. Questions can also be used as a way of showing interest. Showing an interest in other people can help to build relationships and showing an interest in a subject can open up opportunities to become involved. What's more, questions can be used to explore people's personalities or to diagnose problems as well as being the common way of testing people's knowledge, such as exam questions. Questions can also be used to encourage further thought or used to emphasize a point. For example, this can be done using a rhetorical question. Finally, ever heard of an icebreaker? Well, questions can be used to encourage a discussion amongst a group and promote conversation amongst people who don't know each other. So it's worth considering how skilled you are at asking questions. Because although we all know how to ask a question, do we all know how to do it properly? Questions in their simplest form can either be open or closed. Closed questions are questions which require a short answer, often one word, and chosen from a limited set of possible answers. For example, yes or no questions, or multiple choice questions, or a question to get a specific piece of information. Let's look at some examples of closed questions. Would you like an ice cream? What flavour would you like? How much does it cost? In contrast, open questions allow for much longer responses and therefore potentially more creativity and information. An open question asks the respondent for his or her knowledge, opinion or feelings about something and the response is usually more qualitative than quantitative. They usually begin with what, why, or how, but tell me and describe can also be used in the same way. Here are some examples of open questions. Tell me what happened when your ice cream was stolen. Why did you not report it right away? How was your day out at the seaside? There are a few advanced questioning techniques such as leading questions, probing questions, funneling, and rhetorical questions. Let's now take a look at how they work. Simply put, leading questions are where you lead the respondent towards giving you a particular answer which is more favourable to you. 
For example, if a salesperson asks you, how many widgets do you want? Then the salesperson has assumed you want some. To answer the question with a number means you've been led to an outcome. However, you must use leading questions with caution because they can be interpreted as rude and manipulative. Probing questions are questions which force the respondent to think more deeply about the information they recall for their answer. For example, if you use a word like exactly in the question, it forces the respondent to be specific. Funneling questions allow you to cleverly funnel the respondent's answers. You do this by asking a series of questions that become more or less restrictive at each step. You start with open questions and end using closed questions or vice versa. For example, have you been to any good parties recently? What did you do at the party? Was any food provided? Did you eat jelly? The questions in the example become more restrictive, starting with open questions which allow very broad answers and at each step the questions become more focused and the answers become more restrictive. Rhetorical questions are often characterized by being questions which do not require an answer. Sometimes the question is unanswerable, but usually the answer is obvious. So obvious, in fact, that you wouldn't answer it. It has been asked to demonstrate a point and said for effect. Okay. Do you want to know a secret skill about questioning that is left out of many courses? It's the importance of silence. When you ask a question, no matter how awkward you feel, try to be quiet and let the other person answer. As we've just discussed, unless you're asking a rhetorical question, the purpose of a question is to receive an answer. So be sure to give the respondent the time to answer. And while we are talking about responses, how you interpret the response is equally important to the question. For example, you could ask the best question in the world, but if the answer is a lie or you don't get an answer, what good was the question? Watch out for respondents who only partially answer your questions or stall when responding. Politicians are well known for avoiding the question by giving an unrelated answer. So consider what type of response you are expecting and have a suitable method for making a record of the answer. Asking questions. How many of you have thought through you know, the power of a question and understanding when to ask that question? Most of us don't really think about the significance of the types of questions that we ask. But if you're asking questions, particularly to the rising generation that are, do you, will you, could you, should you, would you, all right, then you're going to get yes or no responses. And you're going to feel like, well, I asked them a question. They didn't tell me anything. They just shook their head. Well, because you asked them a yes or no question and they shook their head accordingly. Or they sat in silence because they figured you'd figure out that they already knew or that they you know, got it together. Instead, you need to flip it around and you need to ask the question of, like, what do you think? How do you feel? Why could that be? If you will ask a question that opens with what, when, or not what, when, but what, how, or why, then you will begin to generate a conversation with them because they can't just respond with a quick yes or no. Now, they may sit there and look at you for a really long time. Really, really long time. And they've, they've learned that if they will stay quiet, you'll move on. 
They've learned that you can't stand the silence. They've learned you're going to talk. So why should they? But if you will practice the silence and just sit there and wait for them, They'll talk. They'll talk. They just need to know you're done talking. They need to know that you're done talking. And many of them don't feel that. They don't understand that because we're not giving the right cues. So I'll give you a hint. Go to dinner with them. Ask them a, what happened at school this week and then take a drink. Because they know the minute that you're drinking or eating, well, drinking for sure, that you're not going to talk. Some of us talk with our mouth full, and so it doesn't matter. But it's hard to talk with water in your mouth. They're like, what happened to school today? You know, <laughs> it just doesn't quite work the same. Because I went to work full of drinks. They're like, what's going on there? So there's this dynamic in which if you will just ask a question that is open-ended, not closed-ended, open-ended question, and let the silence sit, then they will begin to respond. The question is, how long should we wait? I live in Dallas, Texas. Just around the corner is Fort Worth, Texas. Every Friday and Saturday night in Fort Worth, Texas, you can see the rodeo. And if you've ever been to the rodeo, you know the contestants who get on the bronc or the bull have to ride it for how long? Eight seconds. So if you're wondering how long you have to sit in silence in order to score, eight seconds. How long is eight seconds? One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi, six Mississippi, seven Mississippi, eight Mississippi. It's really not that long in the scope of things unless you're talking and you're the presenter or you're expecting a response. Then it feels like eternity, and that's why we run over them. That's why we run over them. But they need to know that you are interested enough in them to be quiet and let them respond. And when you are quiet and let them respond in the one-on-one -on -one relationship, then it begins to create community. Then it begins to create community. Now, text messaging, it's really easy to be silent, right? You shoot them a text message, and then you wait for their reply. But they didn't reply fast enough, so you shoot them another text message, and then you, you ask the question mark piece beside it because they didn't respond. By the way, if you're text messaging with somebody under the age of 25, do not send paragraphs. You're lucky if you can send a sentence. No, 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 no. We've got to change our lingo. It's not right. If they're under 25, they're like, bet, bet, okay? No cap means no lie, all right? Cap means lie right there. But, but if you're going to send them a text message and you expect them to respond, don't send the, the church announcements, okay, <clears throat> that go on forever. You got to keep it short, sweet, and simple, all right? If you don't, then they think you're still talking, and they don't recognize the silence, and they won't read the long text. But we've got to get to the place where we build one-on-one -on -one relationship. And the way we build one-on-one -on -one relationship is knowing names, asking questions. Knowing names, asking questions, and remembering their responses are always 
powerful ways to build community. And it works not only for the rising generation, but it works for anybody. This is the way you want to be treated, right? So if you want to be treated that way, how, how would Jesus put it? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. So if you want the rising generation to feel respected, to feel like they belong in church, to discover the story of God, then you've got to do for them what you had done for you or what you wish someone had done for you. And we got a lot of confusion, a lot of doubts, a lot of concerns about the rising generation. And I want to take a moment here and I want to listen to a youth leader out of Conroe, Texas at a church called Wake Church. It's very similar to this church. They just recently moved into an old Kroger building and they've renovated it and they've got kids space. So it's very similar to what you've got going on here at New Beginnings. But let's, let's take a moment here and let's listen to what uh, Pastor Phil is observing about engaging in ministry with youth. This was recorded back in November at the Recalibrate Conference. Uh, and we uh, are really big into looking at statistics among uh, youth and, and young adults in today. But there's something that is like really hard to calculate with youth and uh, something that I've seen very evident is that in today, today's younger generation, they want something real. They want something authentic. And so gone are the days of just uh, providing a service for them one, one time a week and inviting them out to Sunday. They want somebody that's going to do life with them. And so one of the big things is that we've been able to form is what I like to just call authentic community. And what I feel like is the driving factor behind any move of God is whenever the younger generation or a group of people in general, specifically in this context, the younger generation can find authentic community amongst each other. And they're not just going to church for a service, uh, but they're doing life with one another and they are being the church with one another and carrying each other's burdens. And uh, you see true life change happen in that form uh, because they're not just like I'm saying, they're not just going to church because it's a to-do list, but they're going to church because they have a real relationship. And uh, that starts at the top. It starts with the leaders living out this real relationship, having real, commu real community amongst our peers and setting the example for the next generation and helping build and lead that and encouraging them to, to find this authentic and this real community. And I feel like that is something that was probably a Kickstarter for this Asbury revival. The outpouring uh, was a grasp on authentic community and what it looked like to worship God authentically, no matter what, any parameters that you put on it, just simply authentically worshiping God. Yeah, that's good. That's we got excited this time last year when we heard the reports coming out of you know, Kentucky, Wilmore, Kentucky, out of Asbury University as young people were just attending worship and they had like worship for 24 hours, seven days a week for you know, weeks on end. And it was just like this amazing, oh my goodness, the outpouring of God is so powerful and so strong in that moment. And I'm not denying that it was strong and powerful in that moment. But let me just tell you that what we are responsible for doing as followers of Jesus is not just having long worship worship services. We are called to live with one another and to engage with one another. And, and if we don't learn names, if we don't ask uh, questions, if we don't build the one-on-one -on -one relationships, we won't get the authentic community that is needed that will not, uh, it would, then will erode at our ability to have authentic worship. 
So authentic relationships lead to authentic community, which leads to authentic worship. And that's how people are able to understand the truths from God. They're able to grasp these truths and pass them along to the next generation. It is passed along in conversation. It's passed along in community. It's passed along in the worship service as well. But you know, we've got a society that is seeking to divide and conquer us. It is seeking to divide and conquer us to the point that everything now is a wedge to push us apart from each other. Whether it is one's fashion choice, whether it is what news cycle you're listening to, what movies you watch, whether you liked that movie and somebody else didn't like that movie, whether it is the language that we use, the slang that is there, uh, how we use our money, or the music that we listen to. Have you guys noticed that there was this recent crazy, you know, moment of divide and conquer that was put in place that was, you know, was foolish, like over the last two weeks, everybody, well, not everybody, but the media would make you think, Twitter and their company would make you think everybody was up in arms because Beyonce released a country music song. How horrible that Beyonce, this historic pop and R&B song, would release a country song. That's ignorance. Ignorance on multiple levels. One, she's from Texas. So she knows country music because she's from Texas. Two, there's enough uh, you know, research and evidence and historical data to, to let us know that country music actually started in African-American communities before it started among white communities. It's not a white genre originally. It became overtaken by it, but everybody's all upset because Beyonce went from pop and R&B into country music. This is the foolishness that's going on. Instead of celebrating the fact that, hey, Beyonce's doing more music, we're getting all uptight over it. Now, you may or may not like Beyonce's music. That's okay. But if you're going to hate on Beyonce and love on Taylor... You're not winning in the conversation with the next generation. Okay? But we've let all these things, all these labels divide and conquer us, and these labels are hurting us. These labels are, are working against us and making it difficult for us to be able to engage with one another. We've got labels like, you know, what size a youth ministry needs to be. We've got labels as it relates to how many, you know, uh, leaders that we've got to have. We've got labels as to what titles we're going to wear. We've got labels as to what fashion that we're going to put on. We've got labels that are, are diffusing to push us apart from each other. And authentic interests are used to divide us, but they're really there to unite us. And we must become better at cultural exegesis as a result of the way that the world is pushing us apart. Now, some people are in positions where, you know, the youth ministry is struggling. And, you know, I know that many of you are seeing teenagers or young people, and maybe you've got a healthy children's ministry. Maybe you don't. But I just want to hear a quick testimony from Pastor Manny Cirillo out of Kilgore, Texas, talking about what their church had to face as it related to their ministry to the rising generation. So here's another quick, like, one, two-minute video. You know, we are blessed. You know, we had to live um, um, through the life cycle of a dead children's, not children's, but uh, youth ministry. And so we learned that as ministers of the gospel that there are life cycles to ministries. 
And so we got down before COVID uh, broke out where we were down to two or three kids. Teenagers. Teenagers, correct. And so we had to make the tough decision uh, to look ourselves in the mirror and realize that we needed to put the end to that season of ministry um, and then be ready for what God wanted to bring next. And uh, we've been living in, in what that looked like. It was a tough transition, but man, God provided amazing leadership. Uh, we have an amazing youth pastor who was someone that uh, my brother was discipling. And then when my brother moved to Conroe, one of the things he put on my to-do list was to continue to disciple Steve Mena, who is now leading our, our youth ministry that's thriving. So. so you didn't run out and go hire a youth pastor? You raised one up from within the church? I'm, I'm going to tell you, so uh, you want to, you know, scare a 20-something-year-old, you look them in the eye and tell them God's calling you in the ministry. There's nothing, there's nothing quite as scary as the I see in you conversation that is happening, right? And, but here, here's what I want you to catch is that Pastor Manny had to recognize that the way that they had been doing youth ministry was not working. The way that they had been trying to reach the rising generation was based on the old formula and the old format, and it wasn't working anymore. So they had to move into something different. And many of us are struggling to try and figure out how is it we're going to reach them? What is it going to take? How is it that it's going to happen? And, and we're using yesterday's model for tomorrow's solution. And it's not going to happen that way. And we're going to have to hit the brakes and have some honest conversations to say that new wine doesn't go into old wineskin. And in the past, we might have been able to have, you know, big programs where they expect everybody to show up. But now they got big in the pocket. They can access the whole world in an instant. And we can't impress them, nor can we compete with all the fireworks and fog machines and laser lights of the big programs and the amazing games that people put on that they're produced and put together to look great on a screen but don't necessarily work well in person. And what we've got to do is we've got to leverage what it is that the church is best positioned to leverage for. Jesus, when he talked to his disciples as he was getting ready to, to go to the cross, he didn't say, the world's going to know you by how big your building is. The world's going to know you by how awesome the preaching is. The world's going to know you by how uh, amazing the light show is or how great the guitarist is. He said, the world's going to know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so you may feel a bit overwhelmed in trying to stay relevant or likable when you don't know how to engage with this next generation. So I want to drive you back to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Paul is living in an age of multiculturalism. Paul is living in a pluralistic society where they've got great shows taking place in the Colosseums and they've got great opportunities at the various you know, temples of celebration and worship that's going on. And there's sexuality everywhere because it was even a part of the religious behavior that they would have temple prostitutes. And Paul is in the position where he comes in and this is what he says to the church at Corinth. He says, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words or impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. 
And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using, using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. You may find yourself talking with the, the rising generation and you feel the huge disconnect, but all you have to do is realize that Jesus is able to overcome that, that gap. Jesus is able to make that connection. Can you talk to them about Jesus and not just Jesus that's in these pages that we call the Bible, but Jesus who's been in the pages of your life. Jesus who has changed you. Jesus who has shaped and transformed your heart so that way you are different. Can you talk honestly? about where you once were and now where you are because that's what they want to hear they want to know that their struggles are not just their struggles they want to know that you struggled with it as well and that you found Jesus was worth following after and that you gave yourself to Jesus and they want to know that you had doubts about whether Jesus was real they want to know that you had doubts as to whether or not the Bible could be trusted they want to know that you didn't want to go to church come on this is what they want to know, and we're afraid to talk to them because it's like, well, if we tell them what we did as sinners, maybe they'll go out and repeat it. They won't. They're learning from our mistakes and our failures. And they're looking to us for answers, but we are not engaging them in the right way. We're too busy telling them answers rather than asking them how they feel and asking them to explore how Jesus might respond to that. We're too busy in this position of just feeling like it's all on us to solve everything. It's on the power of the Holy Spirit to bring somebody to Jesus. It is not your ability that will cause them to make the decision. Because if it is your ability that will cause them to make the decision, what happens when you fail? What happens when you fall? What happens when you stumble? They won't give grace and they won't see the grace that has been given to you. Instead, they will see that it was a facade, that it was fake, it wasn't real. And what they want is something real and authentic. And let me just tell you, they are searching hard and long to try and make sense out of this. We live in a generation that is greatly confused. Do you know why they are confused? It's quite simply is because they have access to the whole wide world with no guidance. And too many of us are feeling the pressure and the tension of, I don't know what to do. So here, just take a phone, amuse yourself. And we're amusing our children to death. And we're not engaging them with Jesus so that they can experience life. And they're wrestling with a great number of things. But let's be honest. Most of what they're wrestling with is the same thing you wrestled with. The same thing I wrestled with. Can you tell the story honestly? That, hey, that what you're wrestling with, I wrestled with. Instead, what we do is we tend to hide it and we tend to pretend that it's not there and tend to think that it didn't happen. But, you know, I mean, think about this for just a moment, right? We've got this, this, this rising conversation that's all over the place regarding sexual identity. 
LGBTQ+. It's like the only thing that you know, people are talking about right now is LGBTQ+, or Donald Trump, all right? So, I mean, we've got two crazy conversations happening at the same time. We can't find our way through it and, and, and trying to make sense out of it. But let me just tell you that you can have an honest conversation with students about LGBTQ+, identity. And here's where you need to have the conversation, is that you need to recognize that the Bible speaks about behavior, and our culture speaks about identity. I'm going to say it again because I don't know that you understand the significance of this. The Bible speaks about behavior as it relates to homosexual behavior. Our culture speaks about LGBTQ plus as an identity issue. And that's why we feel a conflict rising because we are struggling to navigate the sense in which identity doesn't always lead to behavior and behavior doesn't always you know, uh, capture the fullness of an identity. When we're talking to, to the rising generation about LGBTQ+, we need to recognize that inside them is a sense of confusion and curiosity and doubt and, and overwhelmness anxiety that's rising up. I want you to think about this. This is the slide that many of you have seen already. The CDC reported in 2021 that among those uh, who, uh, teenagers and, and young adults who were surveyed, that around 25% of them identified as LGBTQ+. But when you dive deeper into the number, you find out that the vast majority of those who were identifying as LGBTQ+, were young females as opposed to young males. But then when you dive in deeper, you find out that it wasn't so much that they were identifying as lesbian or they were identifying as uh, you know, other, you know, kind of along the lines of trans or, or the other parts that go into the plus, but they were identifying as bisexual. They were identifying as bisexual. What does that mean? It means that they were attracted to people of both genders and were trying to find their way through it. And here's the thing that we've got to be honest about. We've got to be honest about the fact that, one, we all experience sexual attraction. And sometimes we know why, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we understand what's happening, and sometimes it just happens. But can we also lean in to say that I have found people of the same gender attractive? Because my guess is that at some point or another in your life, you have found somebody of the same gender Attractive. That didn't mean that you went out and you engaged in homosexual activity. It meant that you identified, hey, they're good looking. Or, hey, I feel safe in their presence. Or, hey, I enjoy the company. And so, you know, our society says the greatest form of love is sex. The greatest form of love is not sex. The greatest form of love is sacrifice. And when we, can, when we can articulate that by going to Scripture and pointing out the life of Jesus, then people begin to see it differently. But if the greatest form of love is sex, then if I love somebody, then I must have sex with them. No, you don't have to have sex with somebody to say that you love them. But that's the message that our rising generation is hearing. And so we've got to be able to engage one-on-one -on -one so that way we can hear their struggle. 
We've got to be able to invite them into community. Is it acceptable if somebody feels that they identify as LGBTQ plus for them to be a part of the community? Can they come into your living room? Can they come into your small group meeting? Can they come into your youth group meeting? Can they come into your college ministry? Can they come into your worship assembly? Many of them feel that they are not even welcomed into that space. And then those who do not identify as LGBTQ+, that 25% or 75% who do not identify, many of them are looking and they're saying, my friend is not welcomed into that space, so I will not go into that space. The question about identity is deep and hard to navigate, but we will never navigate it broadcasting. We will navigate it one-on-one as we help people understand that the Scripture speaks about identity just as much as it speaks about behavior. And it says we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We tend to somehow or another feel like we have to lift up sexual behavior and sexual identity as some greater sin than being an alcoholic. Now, the sins carry different impact on somebody, but they're all sin. And they're all searching for identity. They're all searching for coping mechanism. And we've got to lean in and figure out how to make this happen. We've got to be honest and truthful with the younger generation to say that though you may think your identity is this, let me show you what Jesus says about your identity. He says that you who are sinners, can come to him and be saved. You who were lost can be found. You who were those who were not a people can be a people. You who felt alienated can be accepted. Now, if you follow after Jesus, you are one of his children. You are a child of God, and there is room at the table for you. And he will lead you. He will lead you in ways that change your behavior. He will help you wrestle through the anxiety that you feel. He will lead you through the discipline of self-control that applies not only in your sexual practice, but also in your entertainment and also in your coping mechanisms and also in how you eat and a variety of other things that we substitute for God. The world around us needs some direction, needs some hope. I got a couple other things I want to just touch on really briefly, but here's the thing. We could talk about this all day long, but at the end of the day, it's how are we going to respond? What's most important to us? Last year around this time, I got to see the Jesus revolution. Maybe you've seen it. I want to just remind you of the significance of our posture and our willingness to embrace story. Let's watch this clip. These kids are runaways, most of them. They got drug addictions, medical issues. And they need our help. Yeah, but Chuck, <laughs> I mean, they need to go home. They're making our congregation uncomfortable. Maybe they should be uncomfortable. Maybe we all should. Maybe it's my job to make us uncomfortable. 
I haven't been doing it. Chuck, stop. This is enough. This is a house of worship. And yes, we expect a certain level of dignity here. These girls are wearing halter tops, and half of them aren't even wearing shoes. They're staining the new shag carpet with their bare feet. A carpet? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, let's be sure to save the carpet. You keep this up, and you're going to drive away the only contributing members that we've got. You hearing me now? Loud and clear. What is going on? Just pick that right over there on that towel. And this other one here. There we go. Baptize these feet and name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There you go. Welcome to church. <laughs> Hello. Let's have that foot, please. Okay. Place them both on that towel and then. Step on into church. Welcome. Thank you. Hello, young lady. How are you? Let's have that foot. Let's have that other foot. <laughs> sit next to that fella in the cantaloupe jacket. <laughs> Good to see you. Thank you. Enjoy. Welcome to church. Thank you. Hello, young lady. Well, last year I had the privilege of visiting uh, New York City. And like any good tourist, I paid a visit to the Statue of Liberty. And I read those famous words. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. And as I read those words, I thought, well, that's Christianity, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's the essence of it. An invitation to the broken. Jesus was very friendly with the outcasts. In Revelation 22, it says, let the one who can hear say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the waters of life freely. Amen. We have a generation that is being influenced to believe that they don't belong. And we have to do our part as leaders to make sure that they understand that they do belong. And that's going to happen when we engage them one at a time. Not when we try and engage all of them at once, but when we engage them one at a time. A couple of quick questions here for you. Uh, we'll make this slide available later so you can review. But what are some changes that you or those like you uh, need to explore in order to reach the rising generation? What changes do you need to consider to reach the rising generation? What are some things that you refuse to change and why? Right? The, the dynamic of, you know, the carpet. Yeah, I <laughs> That was, that was a powerful thing. What fears do you have about turning things over to the rising generation? I, just a quick aside here. Did you know that a Levitical priest only served to about 50, 55 years of age? 
They only actively served, and then, they, then, then the next generation was taking over. It was always the younger generation rising up into it. How willing are you to lose someone who is already in the room if you reach those who are younger or different? We saw that in, in the Jesus Revolution. The guy in the cantaloupe jacket leaves. He actually ends up leaving. There's a lot more that we said about the, the generations, and uh, I've put together a YouTube video that you can access uh, that it talks about uh, the generations in the church. This was put together through partnership with Texas Ministries, Pastoral Leadership Connection. But if you go to youtube.com slash PLC, the number four, text TXM, then you can watch a video called Generations in the Church. That one is available. And then there's another one where I interviewed nine undergraduate students from Mid-America. Uh, but again, those are there for you to be able to, to go in and watch. You can scan that QR code if you want to take it right to that YouTube link. But it's uh, youtube.com slash PLC4TXM. Here's what I want us to, to leave with uh, with regards to reaching the rising generation. They're not that much different than you. They're not that much different from me. The world is as convinced that we're very different. We're not. What we need to do is lean in, particularly as leaders, so that way they can understand the story of God. I'm going to read it for us one more time. Psalm 78 is where I start it, where I'm going to finish. The psalmist is writing the, you know, for, for, the, church, or for the, the people of God to hold on to. And oh, how we need it. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob and he gave his, his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children. So the next generation might know them and even the children not yet born. And they in turn will reach their own generation, their own children. So each new generation should set its hope anew in God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands, not forgetting his miracles and obeying his commands. But it only happens when they put their hope in him and their hope will be put in him when we as leaders engage them one at a time, authentic relationship leading to authentic community, which then leads to authentic worship. Join me in prayer. God, the task seems big. The world around us would make us think that we don't, we don't belong in the conversation. The world around us will think that we're not good enough for the conversation. Help us to remember that you want us in the conversation. That you expect us to be there that you've commanded and instructed us to pass these things along. And when we think that things are dark and bleak, may we remember, just like Elijah had to remember, be reminded, that though you may think you're alone, there are thousands of others who have yet to bend the knee. And so though we may think that there are those who are not going to believe or have given up on belief, there are thousands yet still who will believe 
are believing and need others to continue to encourage them in their belief. So God, help us each to look back on the names that we wrote down 90 minutes or an hour ago and to turn them into a prayer list. Seek the opportunity to invest into their lives that we might invite them into the kingdom of God and we might see them flourish as we guide and disciple them. May we not cease praying for them. In your name I pray. Amen.